You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 10, episode 14. Arthur Agajanian is a Christian contemplative, essayist, and educator. His work explores visual culture through a spiritual lens. His essays have appeared in a variety of publications, including Ecstasis, Radix, St. Austin Review, The Curator, and many others. He holds an MFA from Otis College of Art and Design. In this episode, I talk with author about his spiritual background, the nature of non-dualistic thinking, and the concept of art set free from the ego. If you've followed the podcast this season, you'll recall that woven throughout our conversations has been the underlying theme of restoration for the heart of the artist. As we approach the final episodes of this discussion, I wanted to revisit our theme in a more direct way. And so I asked author to speak into each thread of restoration, wounded healers, existing in the splice, and restoring the narratives we believe. His responses are absolutely golden, and ones I think we'll return to again and again as we reflect on what restoration means for our own lives and as we prepare to enter the new season ahead. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to author's work and to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. Your support of the podcast enables us to continue producing these vital conversations on art, faith, and culture. Please consider joining today and lend your support to this work. This is my conversation with contemplative artist and essayist, Arthur Agajanian. Arthur, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here, and you're doing wonderful work, so I'm very happy to be part of it. Amazing. Well, I'd love to start by asking you how creativity and art connects in your own life and work, because as you know, Makers and Mystics, we are concerned about those relationships between art, faith, and culture, and how these things intersect. And you have a unique background as an essayist, as a writer, as someone who has walked through Eastern spiritual traditions and found your way back to Christianity or to the way of Jesus. And I know that a part of your work as well deals with the ways that our visual culture or the ways that images can help us understand the deeper truths of our human experience. So let's start there and and talk about how creativity and art intersects with the mystical tradition for you. Sure, I'd love to. A little background, I was born and raised Christian, but as I got older, I outgrew what I had been taught and Christianity was not a living presence in my life. And I was drawn towards Eastern forms of religion with their emphasis on experience through my discovery of the non-dual nature of Jesus's teachings. Christianity came alive for me. I learned about the mystical path first through contemporary writers and then in the rich history of the faith, which I delved into. I recognize that this history has been largely forgotten, but contains the living heart of the religion. I began practicing contemplative prayer 
as I came to see prayer as much wider and more diverse in form than I had been taught. And now I see and appreciate the inner dimension of all religions. This is the unitive awareness that is common to all of them when one develops spiritually. Uh, dogma is left behind and the mystery of Christ has been embraced. Mm. I know Jesus as the union of human and divine in space and time and Christ as the eternal union of matter and spirit from the beginning of time. So my writing serves as a ministry to bring others to an awareness of the divine through the material of culture. It's a way of funneling the understanding that I have of the Christ nature into a visual culture, a material culture that can be apprehended directly and can serve as a portal, as sacred images do, into the divine. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier duality and non-duality. For some of our listeners that may not be familiar with dualism or these terms, uh, duality and non-duality, I'd love for you to take a few minutes and just explain that a bit. I've done a lot of studying of the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers, and I, I really love not only their writings, but just learning about their lives. And it seems that one thing that they all share is that union with God yes. is the aim. It's right at the core of it. And so I'd, I'd be curious to talk a little bit about duality and then union with God. Sure. Well, it's a very deep subject, of course. <laughs> we'll answer it all in 30 minutes, I'm sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> How much time do we have? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Mystical Christianity, it's, I think of it as the inner dimension of our relationship with God, and it's characterized by mystery. Mm -hmm. That's a major component of uh, the mystical path. There's a sense of divine presence that leads us to respond to God's love in a transforming union. It's an inner dimension of religious faith and practice. And when we are distinguishing between duality and non-duality, duality, we have to remember, is the way that we typically, it's the way that we're conditioned to perceive the world and talk about the world and communicate our ideas. It's either uh, or. Yes, right. So we conceptualize and we organize uh, for the sake of uh, understanding and order. And it's necessary. There are some circles where duality gets a bad rap. But <laughs> if we can move between those two mindsets, uh, we will find ourselves in a much larger world. Duality is this either or, as you said, you could put it that way. Non-duality is a recognition that everything is ultimately connected. Everything is part of what's called the ground of being. Mm -hmm. And when you are in a non-dual mindset and you perceive things from a non-dual position, you are okay with things like paradox or seeming contradictions. And you are able to hold ideas and concepts or beliefs that might seem to be on the face of it contradictory, but which in fact make up a larger truth, which is fractured and fragmented by our egos, by our need to think dualistically for the sake of uh, protecting ourselves or 
having a sense of control over our lives and our environments or sometimes other people. And so it, the non-dual mindset is something that is, when we're talking about creatives and artists, it's part of the way of being of the artist. It's critical. And whether the artist knows that term, which is something that comes from the East mm -hmm. that has been adapted into Western language uh, and concepts, whether one is familiar with that or not, the artist is one of the prime practitioners of the non-dual mindset. And it's absolutely necessary for engaging with uh, the larger created order and to ultimately see ourselves as interconnected and not small, separate, isolated selves in a hostile world. As I mentioned earlier, this season on the podcast, we're focusing specifically on restoration for the heart of the artist. And the framework that I'm approaching that subject, there's kind of three threads that I'm chasing. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on each of these threads. The first is our invitation as artists to become wounded healers. And rather than speaking and creating from a place of open wounds, but learning, so to speak, how to spin gold from our shadows and how to transfigure even some of the most painful events of our lives into a source of creativity and even healing for others. And the second thread is what I call in the splice, or it's the space between polarities. And, you know, we mentioned earlier a bit about dualism and duality. And it kind of, it dives into some of that, but it's also about just how the artist often abides in the space between these two points. And I've often said that we as artists, uh, and particularly artists of faith, we can be the bridge builders and architects of hope for our fractured world. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then the third braid of this subject on restoration is talking about restoring and restoring the narratives that we believe about the world, about ourselves, and about our own art, and how what we believe, oftentimes, it's not always rooted in truth. Uh, sometimes we adopt narratives that we've believed about ourselves through childhood and different things, but much of restoration is doing the work of restoring our own inner landscapes. So why don't we start with this idea of the artist as wounded healers? What does that evoke in you? It's a great question. And one of the first thoughts that comes to mind is that for most of us, the artist included, the problem is identification with a false self. Mm -hmm. This notion that this person with a name and a history and a set of relationships is who I truly am, this identity construction. And it's in that identity that woundedness or suffering occurs uh, when we're disappointed, when our expectations are shattered, when things don't go our way, when uh, we feel a loss of control. And suffering humbles you. It teaches surrender and it teaches acceptance. And if the artist's woundedness or suffering can burn away his or her ego, then the gift of the spirit can flow more purely. So good. <laughs> yeah, I think about the artist's self-awareness as an opening to wisdom that is then shared through the material of art as a gift. 
to the world. Mm -hmm. We can make art partially through our egos. We can make art completely through our egos and we can make art guided by the spirit and the results will be very different for us as the makers and for the audience as the receiver. Whenever I made art in the past, the best work always came out of a place of unselfconsciousness. I can distinctly remember moments when I gave up and then something came through. And that something was always mysterious to me. It was always something surprising. And without fail, everybody else could also identify that this is the most interesting thing you're doing right now. That thing that I almost cast aside because it didn't meet my expectations. It wasn't what I was going for. So that pushing past uh, the ego, um, art set free of the artist's ego, it speaks then to larger concerns in the world and others can relate to and learn from the work because it's not just the work as an object, but there's also that sense of how the work, oftentimes how that work came about. One might imagine a narrative of the artist making the work, or one will recognize that there's an openness and a generosity to the work that could not have come from an artist who was imprisoned in their ego and was making art to scream at the world, for example. The art came from a place of love. And it's not love the way we conventionally think of it. When I'm talking about love, I mean love as a truth, as the, the basis of, of who we are in God. And the love of the truth, when it dictates the form of the work, it changes it from within. It's, it's like an infusion into your process and into the materials, into what you produce. And what you make then, regardless of what form it takes, comes close to, it never is exactly, it can't be, but it comes close to a certain reality that you're trying to convey. Ultimately, artists are regularly frustrated because there's never quite that ability to say or express exactly th the nature of that reality because we can't grasp that. When we use words to talk about the nature of reality or to talk about God, to talk about the divine, we're using words as pointers. And it's the same thing with our visual language. Uh, so we're, they're approximations, but sometimes we come close. And that's a thrill that for the artist that goes way beyond the ego boost of sales, accolades, positive critical reception, acceptance by the art world. So art takes the senses on a journey as we make the art and through the material, the process of making, and then the process of reception for the viewer, it brings us back. Great art brings us back to the source of our perception. We, it opens us up into something else. And that is that pure awareness, that recognition that there's something that we're connected to that's larger than us. There's a collapse between the subject and the object in this experience of beauty. And um, it, it's something that uh, we recognize whether we can name it or not. Anytime we come to art that's truly significant and we don't bring, as receivers, we don't bring um, an expectation that it should be explained to us. So we have to, as receivers, also have a generous relationship to what we're in front of or what we're listening to or what we're reading. Several things you said just struck me. First, I love the idea and the language of art set free from the ego. Hmm. I love thinking about that. And then the other thing you said, 
great art brings us back to the source of our perception. And those are beautiful statements. As we're talking about the false self, you know, I know even in my own life and some of the sufferings and painful things, self-inflicted pain that I've gone through, the false self, it's easy to get lost in the outside. It's easy to get lost in our works. It's easy to get lost in the applause or the reception to the creative works that we're doing. And, you know, I think there's a ditch on either side of the road because I know that our art and our creative works, they may not be the roots of our person, but they are the branches. But if we're only caught up in a false self or in my own journey, I've put it in terms of like, I want to I want to learn to cultivate a holy indifference that whether I'm despised or applauded, I'm still gonna be true to the work that I'm called to do. But I think that's an important distinction to make between the false self and then the art that's set free from the ego. Well, it's interesting because what you said about this uh, breaking the art away from the individual, there's dualism right there. That's this <laughs> That's right. desire to put things into their proper place and uh, give things labels. And uh, what I'm continually brought back to, and, and this is primarily driven by my contemplative practice, is the unity uh, that we have with everything in the created order uh, and um, how that's central to our relationship to God, that everything belongs, as it's said. In fact, kind of as a test for myself, anytime I feel that I'm fragmenting or breaking things off in my life, an alarm kind of goes off and I go back and I think, okay, wait a minute, that can't be. That's a habit of my mind to separate. So how are these things joined? I find how they're joined relatively quickly. I recognize it then when I shift to that non-dual mindset and I look at them from a new perspective, and then there's a greater appreciation for how things flow into each other. And with that, I think also comes a greater acceptance of how things just need to unfold and that we need to get out of the way and, and let the spirit, especially as creatives, let the spirit dictate what needs to happen. It's so easy to cling to our, our plans and our values that are built around being accepted and validated by other people. But it's so insignificant in relation to that acceptance by a public is very insignificant in relation to the joy that we feel in connecting to the truth through our own work. It's something that we feel and something that continues to, to drive every creative person uh, despite all the exterior obstacles. Well, let's take this into the second part of our question then, because I think that really builds a beautiful bridge into that. But thinking of the artist existing in the space between these polarities or existing in the splice and how the artist can be a bridge builder, you know, in this sort of dualistic way of thinking, how the artist can serve as a bridge builder. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think artists are in a unique place to make that happen and to operate in the contemplative space. Because if you think about the contemplative dimension of, of prayer and what the artist does, both require attention and both require silence. And for the visual artist, as opposed to the performing artist, 
I always used to rue the fact that as a as a visual artist, I didn't have that ego return that a performer would have with the applause and with the <laughs> yes. with with the immediate feedback. Um, the right. visual artist is very much isolated, lives in a lot of isolation as they produce their work. It depends, of course, the type of work they're making. Many artists work in collaborative modes or with the public in, in various ways, but uh, traditionally, the artist is isolated in his or her studio. And uh, it's like a monkish existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that commonality between the contemplative mode of being, that recognition of the importance of silence, that non-dual awareness, being comfortable in meditation and not looking for answers or for affirmations from the outside world, that is something that is very basic also to being an artist. Uh, I know that when I was younger and I was in front of artwork, I've always spent a lot of time in silence and given a lot of space for myself to be able to commune with an artwork, to to receive it and to process it and to, to engage with it. And that was a contemplative mindset and uh, a contemplative and open heart, which I didn't recognize as such until um, I found that in uh, spiritual practice and in a religious context. Uh, but in terms of liminal space, that kind of comes in very easily into this whole framework. Liminal space when you talk about being in the splice, liminal space is that place of transformation. That's between and betwixt. You know, you're you're neither here nor there. You're sort of traveling in between in in, in a non-fixed way. Uh, that's the way of the mystic. Yes, that unboundedness, and that's where transformation occurs. Our transformation in terms of our work, our transformation in terms of our individuality. It's another way of thinking about conversion. It's a turning around and it's a coming back to home or our home in God, turning around and looking back at who we are in God, our true selves. Uh, artists are often more comfortable than others with ambiguity and paradox, mm -hmm. partly because they recognize uh, intuitively or sometimes in very clear ways that this is where the magic happens, that this is where the best work comes, right? That you know, we, we've heard countless stories about how the artist, in a sense, sort of gave up, dropped it, stopped, turned away, and then something kind of fell, you know, almost yes. from the sky, right? <laughs> and great right. art always invites us also into this indeterminate space, this um, liminal space where we let ourselves go. And we, again, as long as we're not bringing an agenda, as long as we're not coming in saying, explain this to me, or why is this abstract painting Mm -hmm. What? Why does it deserve to be hanging in 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 the Museum of Modern Art or whatever else? Right? We have a generous attitude. You have to be ready, right? You have to be willing, and then open. It's just like spiritual development. You have to be open to growth and to learning. Uh, if you're happy with staying with where you are, you know, like Bob Dylan once once wrote, "If if you ain't busy being born, you're busy dying." That's right. <laughs> and uh, my writing explores this contemplative aspect of art uh, in seeking a new way to understand the things that happen in this splice. So uh, opening up and recognizing that in, in the perception of the artwork, in engagement with the artwork, uh, we can go beyond ourselves and connect to something that's much larger, which is the, the network that we're, we're part of uh, in, in the divine consciousness. 
of God. Well, I want to ask you this third part of the question as we're talking about restoration for the heart of the artist. And this last thread is about restoring the narratives that we've believed and the stories that we tell about ourselves, about the world and about our own art. These stories really configure the reality that we live in. But these narratives aren't always rooted in truth. And even as we talked about earlier, art getting set free from the ego, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea of restoring the narratives we believe and how your own faith or your own way that you engage your spiritual path, how that has helped you in restoring some of the narratives of your own life. I really appreciate the question. This uh, subject of story is very rich. Firstly, I want to say that it's important that we remember that we are not our stories and shouldn't identify too strongly with them. Interesting. There are, yeah, because when we talk about the false self, mm-hmm. I mean, the false self is a series of stories, right? Yes. Interla- uh, overlapping, interlocking stories that make up this identity of this is Arthur or this is Stephen. Um, that container with our name slapped on the side of it is full of stories about who we are. And that's also full of suffering, of, of brokenness, of woundedness, right. and some of the other things that uh, we were talking about. There are, in my mind, two kinds of stories. Uh, and hopefully this will clarify this, this notion of story uh, a little bit. There are stories that support an image identity, which is what I was just referring to. And then those are, there are stories then that help lead us to an awareness so if we talk about true self, false self, uh, that's one leads to one and uh, one supports the other. Uh, certain stories support our false self. So the question then is, which are we using? What kind of story are we engaged with? The story of me can be a trap because it supports a false sense of self, one that is separate from the source. But stories can also help us grow when they involve imagination and creativity. Jesus's parables and the Zen ox herding pictures from 12th century China, which are about finding enlightenment through images, commentary, and the written word through a form of poetry. These are examples of stories that engage our imagination and which lead us to a deeper understanding of who we are and how we're living in the world. Stories can function to support our personal evolution. And when we get to the next phase of our spiritual maturity, we can leave those prior stories behind when we no longer need them. Or we, well, we seek out new ones uh, when necessary. So the stories of our lives and the stories that help move us forward evolve as our needs do. But when we cling to one story or one set of stories, they become prisons. The stories we use should never become the truth itself. The truth cannot be contained in a story. The story is simply a pointer. So how are we using the story? Are we using the story for growth and and wisdom 
and coming closer to God? Is the story a raft that we're using temporarily to get to the next place as we move through maybe liminal space to the next place in our personal development? Or is the story, um, I'm a victim or I can never forgive so-and-so or I'll never be good enough or, you know, I'm not good at math, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is that story? So would you say then that a way we can think about restoring would be perhaps to shed some of the stories of the false self and perhaps to embrace the story that the creator has spoken about us as the creation or you know, the, to use the mystical terms, and I've said this many times, that I am the beloved. Maybe it's a, it's a way of shedding the stories, our false self, that we've believed from the false self and then taking that journey toward mystical union, taking that journey toward a non-dualistic perception of ourselves and of the world. Yes, I think that's a really good way to put it. One must be conscious of the stories that one is identifying with and constantly assess what kind of power does this story have for me? Uh, What am I identifying with? And if the story helps us as, as people, helps us in our faith, if it helps us learn the lessons of Jesus, if it helps us to recognize our oneness with our neighbor, uh, if it brings more love and and unity into our lives, that story is a story that we need. Mm -hmm. And as we move forward, other stories come in, uh, maybe from other traditions, other contexts that can enrich the stories we know and and can kind of layer it. You can have an archaeology of stories and in the form of myths and fables and literature and arts and scripture that help you as guideposts, as pointers, never completely containing the, the truth of who we are and what it means to be in God. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for spending this time with me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to this episode multiple times to extract all the richness of everything you shared with us today. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Stephen, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Somewhere at Sea. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to today's guests and to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.